We're, uh, we'll be in the book of Exodus today, Exodus chapter 14, and we're going to talk about detours. Um, I went to seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. On their way up there, we had never, I had never been to Kentucky before the first time I went up to visit the seminary. And we got off on uh, a road that took us over to Link, the birth, Lincoln's birthplace. And it was a, it's, in, it's a little shack enshrined in this big monument. So we went to see it, and then we decided we needed to get back to Louisville. We had wasted a little too much time out there, and we needed to get home. It wasn't time wasted, but, you know, we needed to get to Louisville. And so instead of taking, going back and backtracking, going to the interstates, I felt very confident in my navigation abilities and my understanding of a place I'd never been before. And we we're going to take back roads all the way up to Louisville from Lincoln's birthplace. That was very stupid. And um, it took us forever, okay? And one, of, But it did lead to one of the greatest detour signs I've ever seen in my life. It was a solid line, then a right angle that was like pixelated, just dots, and then another full straight line. And we saw this, and it said one mile, and then it had this, and then it was half mile, and then it had that sign again. And I was like, what is that? And so we're driving, and then what it is is they're in the middle of the road, and we're cooking because I'm mad that I'm late, and it's my fault, you know. And so we're cooking down the road probably way faster than we need to be going. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the road is a farmhouse with a historical sign right in front of it. And then a right angle of a gravel road till it got back on to a regular paved road. And we did the whole, "Ah!" you know, because I'm I'm cooking. And I slam on the brakes and I was like, I guess this is the pixelated dot part. And we turned on the pixelated dot part. And then we turned on the regular road and we made it safely. No harm, no foul. But a detour can come in your life just that abruptly, right? We all have detours in life. You see that? The new Captain D's was put in in Gallatin. People are insane. They were like lined up. Were they giving away free fish? I, what is wrong? That You know Captain D's is not fish, right? That's like particle meat from some, you know, oceanic area that they put together. It's like plankton and like meat proteins that they found, and they put it together and fry it. Like, people are lined up around the block, and so you have to detour around downtown Gallatin to go anywhere. Detours are a part of life, and in particular, detours are a part of our Christian lives. And, and what we've been looking at in the book of Exodus is, is God, he, he meets his people where they are to save them. And we go back and we look, the people were in bondage in Israel. They're crying out to God, and they're like, God, save us. We need you. Save us, God. And he comes and he saves them. He uses Moses and he uses the judgment of the plagues. He uses the last one, the death of the firstborn, to get the Egyptians to let them go. They plunder the Egyptians and God leads them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He leads them out. God meets us where he he needs to meet us in our sin and in our hopelessness. And he brings us out through a sacrifice. We know ultimately the sacrifice of the Passover land that we see in the book of Exodus is pointing to Jesus' once for all sacrifice. So he meets us where we are. Aren't you glad first off that he meets you where you are? You don't have to put on any airs. You don't have to pretend you're better than you are. For, for you to know salvation, Christ must meet you where you are and have no, you have no power in it. And so what we have is God meets him where you are and he doesn't leave his people there though. 
he leads them out towards his purposes and plans for them. And that's what we pick up on in Exodus 14. God meets us where we are to save us, but he doesn't leave us there. He moves us out to follow him. And so if you pick up in Exodus chapter 14, actually we're going to backtrack just a tad and go to Exodus chapter 13. And I'm just going to go ahead and forewarn you, okay? There will be a lot of reading in this section, okay? So I need you to do something. Follow along on the screen. I'm going to try to read with the most inflection that I can, but if we don't watch out for this, eventually it's going to sound like Charlie Brown's teacher. It's going to be harder for you to understand where we're going, but you need to get this. This is the word of God, and I know it's a little bit lengthy, but it tells a story that will help us understand how we need to deal with detours in our life. So pick up in Exodus chapter 13 and follow along with me. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, that said, this is after the death of the firstborn. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Now, this is important, okay? And we talked about this last week, but just in case you missed it, this is very important. God doesn't lead the people in the most direct path. What is the shortest distance between two points? Straight line. Now, from where they were in Egypt to where the promised land is, is a straight line. But you know what? They don't go, and which is actually northeast. Instead of going northeast, do you know how they go? They go southeast. And they go southeast, considerably southeast, judging by the route that they and so God sent them the wrong way on purpose. And I, wanted to go, I want to show you why he sent them the wrong way on purpose. First off, it does tell us this, that he did not send them through the land of the Philistines, which would have been the direct path. Although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So note this, God sometimes detours our path which means if we go a way that we weren't intending to go, he leads us in a way we weren't intending to go because we aren't ready yet to fight certain battles without becoming discouraged. Let me just get this. God leads us in ways that we don't understand. Like, that's happened to you in life, right? Has it? I mean, it happens to me. It happened to me. 35 years old, and I get diagnosed with colon cancer. My life, you know what? In your life plan, when you're talking like when, you're, when your kids are graduating and stuff, it's never like, you know what, probably in my middle age, I'm going to, early middle age, I'm going um, to get a disease that could possibly kill me. That's in nobody's plan. Can you imagine that? What are you going to do after college or after high school? Well, my plan is to go to college and then about 28, get leukemia. Do you ever hear anybody say that? Or I'm going to go and I'm going to find at somebody's wedding day, I'm going to marry the love of my life and then they're going to die. Or I'm going to marry the love of my life and they're going to leave me for somebody else. Or how many people can see that coming in their life? Nobody can see it coming. Life is full of detours. And what we see here is that God detours his people on purpose because they're not ready to fight a battle yet because they'll become discouraged and they might leave. So the detour trains us and prepares us for a ministry we have or the promises that are. So you know that, so like, there's even training. When God takes our life and he turns it upside down, there's a plan in it. 
And I want to show you why there's a plan. Because look, look down in the verse. Because here, who leads them there? Verse 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night, a pillar of fire to, to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from amongst the people. That represented the presence of God. God is leading them like your GPS. When we were living in Louisville, the airport was south of town, we, south of where we lived. The Indiana was north of town, okay? And uh, you had to pass over a big bridge to get to Indiana. We had a lot of family that would come visit us. And because a lot of our family lives in Florida, the best way for them to come was to fly into Louisville. So we got really acquainted with the Louisville airport. And a lot of times I would have class, and my wife was a school teacher, so she'd get out early and she'd go pick up family members or people that came to visit us at the airport. She had a GPS. This is before the days of uh, us having smartphones, okay? This is like, uh, this is like Apple um, iPhone 1 and 2, so we didn't have those yet, okay? We were still texting with the flip phones, okay? And so she, she had one of those like standard GPSs plugged in there, which was, had the voice like, turn left here. And so she had this GPS, and every time without fail, I get a call. Matt, is the airport in Indiana or Kentucky? Amy, it's the Louisville International Airport. It's in Kentucky. I'm in Indiana. I drove across the bridge again. Every time she went by herself, and I love her dearly, and she's a super intelligent lady, no sense of direction. The GPS would be, she said, I was following the GPS. And somehow she would end up in Indiana trying to go to the airport. Like, she would blame the GPS, and maybe it was. I never had problems getting there, okay? I don't know. The GPS never said that, okay? But she would blame, like, the GPS was wrong. And have you ever been lost? Guys, we do this, like, the GPS is just stupid. I know how to get there. They have a God GPS. He's led the people out by a cloud and a pillar of fire. You can't, this is, this is a lot more, it's not as subtle as, turn left here, or the little truck on your, you know, on your GPS, or the arrow. No, this is God's presence in front of them, leading the people, and he leads them on this detour so that they would not become discouraged by the fight that's ahead of them. I want you to get this. It's very possible that the detour you're experiencing in life, the, the changed course that your life is taking, is not for now, but it's for later, and God is preparing you for a future ministry or future purposes and promises that he has for you. I heard one guy say this this week. He said that I, I, want God to, I need God to make me more holy now so that when I get to heaven or I get to the new heavens and the new earth, I'm not under so much culture shock of all the holiness. And I thought, man, that's what a, what a thought. Because God could be preparing us for your next ministry or he could be preparing you for his presence. And he does that through those times. So this detour, and it says it very clearly, this is not a mistake. God is leading them. I want you to get this. When bad things come into your life, when bitter providences come into your life, when difficulties come into your life, they are father-filtered. He is in control. There is not a gnat in South Georgia that he doesn't know its name. There is not a molecule in the lakes and the rivers around here that he does not control. Everything that comes into your life, he controls. Now, if you don't, if you don't 
believe that, then your life is just basically in chaos. Like you have no reason to understand and see a purpose in anything. If he is out of control, then he is not God. He is not the Almighty. But the scriptures show God leading us in difficult, impossible situations, way around what our conceived plan would be for his purposes in our life, and he is leading. He is leading. And listen, if you can grab that now, if you're not in a difficult situation and you can grab that now, it will help you when you come, when your world falls apart. And if you're in that situation now and you're just grasping, I hope you can hold on to that truth that God is in control and he is working. He did not let them go the most direct route because he was, they were not ready and he was preparing them for the ministry that he has for them and the promises that were going to be applied and given to them. And then we see this in verse 14, or chapter 14. Pick up with me in verse 1 of chapter 14. And this is where we're going to get to a long reading section. On your mark, get set. We'll read together. Verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Herathoth. And you're going to get the best pronunciations you can get, okay? You're welcome. And between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, and they shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. So God gives them directions now and leads them to the place that they're going to camp. They're camping in between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army that's coming. This is a terrible battle strategy. You always want to have an effective route of escape. But God leads them to a place where they are now effectively in between drowning or the, the greatest military might of the day. And then we pick up in verse 5. And this is all. God is doing this on purpose so he might show how much greater he is than Pharaoh. Second, verse 5, it says this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So they, they wise up, and this is all part of God's plan. They realize it, but God's also hardening the heart. Pharaoh realizes something. The people of Israel number about 2 million people, as we looked at last week. So Moses is leading this group of 2 million people out. I just can't help but think about teachers at the end of school. Like, in your 30-person classrooms, they're all acting like, orangutans, okay? They're throwing stuff, they're breaking things, and you're like, let this be over. And you're having problems keeping hold of 30 of those kids. Can you imagine 2 million people that he's having to lead out of this place? That's a lot of people. And Pharaoh realizes something. As the 2 million people leave, there goes his labor force, and he goes, what was I thinking? I need those people back. And so what does he do? In verse 6, it says, So he made his chariots, made ready his chariot, and he took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going on defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and encamped at the sea by Pi-Heroth in front of Baal-Zephon. So they immediately find where the people are and they catch up to them. Now, 
When you heard chariots, you're mo- most of you went maybe Gladiator or like Ben-Hur or some old movie, and you don't think like a chariot. Like, you might think, when you think of chariot, you might think of that horse-drawn carriage in like New Orleans or one of those old towns where you're just like, you know, the guy in the top hat's like, hello, come on, get on the cot. And you're like, why are you speaking in a British accent? We're in Florida or wherever, you know? And you're, are you thinking about downtown in Nashville where, they, you know, they got the guy riding the horse, you know, he's got the horse and the carriage and you, you pay the money and you ride around and they tell you history and it's, it's pseudo-romantic even though the horse is in front of you doing its job and... All of that to be said, when you get to this point, chariots don't seem ominous or threatening, right? Until you realize at that time period, that was the tank of the day. That was the most advanced military weapon of the time. And he didn't just have a few. He had 600 plus plus all this army Pharaoh has sent after these two million people. Now, if 600 chariots pulled up out in front of Hartsville, you know what we'd do? <laughs> you know why? Because we got guns everywhere here, okay? I know. There are guns all over the place. I mean, I don't even, let, let's just not even think about that, okay? I mean, how many guns maybe even been in this building, okay? There are guns everywhere. So we were like, chariot, no, think so. I got a Glock for that, Okay. That is not happening. But can you imagine if 600-plus tanks rolled up to Trousdale County? Your Glock ain't doing nothing to a tank. And that's what's happened with these people. They've come prepared for battle, but their implements of war are nothing compared to these, these modern implements that, uh, at the time that, the, that Pharaoh had. And God has led them between an army and drowning. Because they are in between the Red Sea, they're camped exactly where he told them to camp. This is not an accident. And on the other side is the most powerful military of the moment. Fully armed, very angry, and very, very aggressive in wanting to reclaim those that were basically making their economy go. In verse 10 it says this, Then when Pharaoh drew near... The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said, Moses, and you would think when it says cried out, you almost get there's this poetic thing that's going to happen. This is the most whiny, scared stuff in the world, but you can kind of understand it. Because here's what happens. They said to Moses, it's because, it, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Very passive-aggressive. Didn't, didn't they have graves that they could bury us in Egypt, and you brought us all the way out here to die out here? Why? And then they say, what have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? This is only moments, days removed from, well, yay, they're giving us, God has freed us. They're giving us their money and their gold. And now, why did you bring us here? And then we see this. Verse 12. Is it not, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Not really. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Then Moses said to the people, fear not. 
Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And then he says, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Now, I want you to get this. We've seen this about detours. Again, God is leading. He is that perfect GPS. He is leading them exactly where he wants them to go. The first detour, when they didn't go through the land of the Philistines, was there because they were not ready to fight a battle yet. He was preparing them for what's to come. Secondly, he puts them in this impossible situation. He told them to go camp at this place, and then he hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart as well, and they ended up, now there's the biggest army in the world on one side, drowning on the other side, and God's people right there, led there on purpose. And I want you to see this. He detours them from the normal, logical route for a reason. He detours our path so that we, when we're put in certain situations, tough, so that we would be put in tough, seemingly impossible situations so that God might be seen to be our champion. I just want you to hear that again. God puts us on purpose. He put his people on purpose in tough, seemingly impossible situations. God did that so that he might be seen as our champion and our warrior. Because oftentimes, we like to be the center of our own story. If you're honest, most of the time, we are the center of our own story. If not, it kind of revolves around us. Even when you're telling a story, usually it revolves around you or how you perceived it. And God is putting us in a seemingly tough situation so that we realize that it is not by our strength that we can accomplish anything of spiritual significance. Now, there's, this is the time of year when you hear a lot of good graduation speeches, and we've heard some good graduation speeches as I've gone, and you're going to hear a lot about stick and fortitude and all that kind of stuff, and those are not bad qualities. But I will tell you this. The essence and the, 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 the people who really persevere in life aren't the ones that trust themselves, but the ones that have trust in God. Because they really have a strong sense of purpose, a strong sense of God's calling and inclination in their life, and they realize that they will pay what they will they will face impossible tasks, but they have someone to look to other than themselves. And you will see that you need a champion or a warrior. We don't like to think about that, but that's exactly where God has put us. Now, think with me for a second about what God shows. The, the army shows up, right? And what do the people do? Do they show great fortitude, stick to Do they show an absolute resolve immediately to face the great challenges ahead of them with gusto? No. What do they do? They complain. And do you know what our default reactions are all the time? Unless you are a liar or more holy than, than, than you, then, wow, unless you, you should be like sainted, okay? Our number one reaction when things happen, even those of us who are following the Lord, is to gripe and complain and at least call out God why. Do you know how I know that? King David, a man after God's own heart. Have you ever read the Psalms? Like, it's very emo, Okay. You know what I mean? It's very emotional. 
Because he's like, it goes from like, God, I'm in the depths. Like that one I, wait, I read to you, Psalm 40, a few minutes ago. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. You know that one? Then you know where it goes. It goes real dark and emotional. He lifted me up out of the dark, miry pit, out of the clay. Dang, man. You had something bad happen to you. You've been listening to The Cure or something, man. What's up? That, it gets real dark. Go read some of the Psalms. It gets really dark. And so what do the people do? Hey, Moses, didn't we have graves in Egypt? You know what would have been better about Egypt? We didn't have to walk all this way to our graves. And we might have lived a little bit longer in slavery before we went to our graves. Hey, and we told you we didn't want to come. You know, it's amazing how the story changes, right? They're, God, help us. Yay, God saved us. We didn't want to come out here, God. When things come into the situation, when our plans fall apart and the detours occur, they change their situation and their thought. And so what we see here is on purpose, the Israelites are, if you're honest and if I am honest, that are our, that those are our reactions when detours occur, especially ones when we end up in tough, seemingly impossible situations. Our first reaction is not towards stick-to-itiveness, perseverance, or some deeper quality. It is for we need someone to save us. And the scriptures are showing us here that it is not by our strength that we are to be saved. And God will put you, and he has put you, and probably, and or he will put you in seemingly tough, impossible situations so that he might be seen as your champion and warrior and not you. Your story, if you're in Christ, you've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. Your story and my story, if we are in Christ, is not supposed to be about us, but about Christ in us. And all this was given to us in, in, in the New Testament terms to those of us who are waiting the last days, as Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians. This is for our example so that we would not sin and that we might know how to live in this life. And so your life and my life will be much easier if we realize that God does bring tough, seemingly impossible situations, situations that we cannot bear on our own. He brings those or win on our own. He brings those into our life so that he might be seen as the champion and not us as the ones in strength. And that's why you see in the New Testament, the disciples, they don't look holy all the time. You know what they're doing most of the time? They're running in fear or saying the wrong thing. And it's not until God empowers them with with his Holy Spirit that they do courageous things. And even when they do courageous things, they still screw up and mess up and don't believe like they ought to. That's what they're doing here. God is showing the people of Israel is not because the people of Israel were so valiant and, and have so much fortitude that they would go forth and they would win and they would survive the Egyptian attack. No. They were like, so scary. It's hot. We're out in the desert. And so you know some of them who knew maps were like, the place we're going is that way. You're sending us that way. And you know the people who are too smart that always have the suggestions that always seem smart, but they're not good suggestions. You know those people? You can know that somebody in the back was going, yeah, if he leads us here, um, certain death because we're going to drown in that river. That's a bad strategic move, okay? It's really bad. You know that analytical guy in the back. Like, That's wrong. 
They have gotten to this place. God has led them there on purpose, and he has shown that their strength is not enough. We are not, we are not saved, but we need a champion. That is, that is one of the great types and examples in all the Bible that, that point us to Jesus. God's people can never save themselves. They always need to be rescued. The greatest rescue would be on a cross. And that's what we see here. But notice this. God is putting us in this impossible situation so he might be seen as our champion and warrior. So, not, so we could show our strength's not there, but then look in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, <laughs> he does not even acknowledge the griping. Which sometimes, here's just, this is free advice for you. You don't have to be right all the time. I know that's hard. I know social media, when people put stuff you don't like, this is just free advice. You don't have to be right. Because if Moses had to be right, he'd be like, well, actually, you did say, because God told me, he's tweeting this back to the people of Israel, okay? Well, actually, uh, they do have graves in Israel, and they stink compared to the graves out here. Plus, I mean, I mean, he could have like, I got to correct you, and you did say. No, what does he do? He just says, the Lord says, Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And then he says, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And I think this stands as good advice for us because if we believe in God's providence, which is his leading and his, and his moving of his people, which I showed you in Scripture is true, that God is the one who has led him to this place, and he has put them in the t- seemingly tough and impossible situation to be seen as a warrior, to show his people that they can't abide and, and live in their own strength, then what he is showing us here is that when we face those situations, there's a good strategy that Moses gives us. It's not, it's first, it stands with these three things in verse 13. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Fear not, I want to start off with that one. That, means, that doesn't mean the absence of fear because it would be insane not to be afraid with the biggest army in the world staring down at you knowing that they have ill intent towards you. That's, that doesn't mean the absence of fear, but it means not to become overcome by fear. You know what it is to be overcome by fear, right? It, a really, really bad choice because of fear. If you have a fear of spiders, okay? And you were like, you found a spider in your bed. And you realized that the only way to really make sure you had that spider killed was to light your house on fire. That's a bit of an overreaction, okay? Right? That is letting fear consume you. To, that's a funny way of thinking about fear consuming you to the point of you doing something stupid. And I want you to know this. Fear has a way of doing that to make us drunk, to make us to this place where we don't have any control of our actions. We do things out of fear that we ought not do. We do things out of fear that hurt other people. We do things out of fear that we worship things out of fear or overcome by fear. Fear of loss, fear of the pain, fear of all these things. That's why people run to drugs and alcohol and so many different things to make it to numb themselves because they don't want to deal with the fear. Or you might run to an idol. You might run to greed. 
You might say, if I can have enough money saved up, then I won't have to fear when illness comes, or I won't have to fear if the stock market tanks. Or you can go to any number of things where you can talk about any number of things. We love to make idols and things that we fear, and we do it out of a drunkenness trying to make sure we're safe. And God is the one who holds our safety in his hands. And so the fear here is not a cause, not saying when, when, when we face these situations to not have fear, but it's not to become drunk on that fear. And it'll make us do stupid things. So he says to these people, don't fear. Can you imagine if two million of them scattered two million different directions? <laughs> then they would have no hope. Don't do stupid things. Fear not. Stand firm, which means don't leave. That means hold on to the promises even when you can't see them. And then it says, and see the salvation of the Lord. And then he says in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. As a little kid, when you get in trouble or somebody would be bullying on, picking on you, you might run to mom or dad. And if you ran to my mom, I could tell you this. She was going to cut somebody. I know if you've seen my mom, she's a very nice lady. But you mess with her kids, I've seen her do some things. Like I'm like, did you grow up in like a street gang? What are you doing? Okay. So you know her, can see that. Mess with one of her kids, she'll cut you. But as a young man, you don't want mom fighting your battles, right? So you've got to get tough enough, and you've got to stand up. And there's a part of coming to age that's, that you, you know, that's part of it. But what we have here is an impossible situation in which we need to run to God and stand firm, and he is going to be the one who fights for us. And that's exactly what happens. When you, when you get to that impossible situation, fear is real and it can come and it can contaminate and it can kill and it can kill our faith and it can cause us to run to all sorts of sins, things we can do to try to avoid looking at the fear or things we do to try to control our own situation so that we might try to kill fear ourselves. But the, the thing that Moses is telling his people to do in the seemingly impossible situations is let the Lord fight your battles. Now, this is not a call to inaction. I hope if you know me, I wake up every morning, most mornings, ready to go, ready to fight the day, ready to seize the day. But you know what? I will tell you this. There are many battles that we cannot fight and win on our own, and we must fight with the weapons that we have been given. And the spiritual weapons are what I'm referring to. And that is prayer and worship and the Word and fellowship and walking according to the Spirit, and not trying, to, not trying to gratify the desires of the flesh. That is how we ought walk when we are in these situations. We cannot let fear make us doubt the promises of God. They are true. Our God is with us. He has shown us from the beginning that God abides with his people and he leads his people. And the situation you're in, if it is difficult and dark and seemingly impossible, he's there. He's led you there. And he will not abandon you there. And your fear will make you drunk and make you try to do things that are dumb. But stand firm in the things you know to be true and let him fight your battles for you. And that comes with a, just in the foolishness, seeming foolishness of fighting 
in your prayer closet. Which is, God, you got to do it. You're crawling out to him. It seems foolish. If a job needs to get done, you think you go out and you go do it. But in God's economy, you come to him and you say, you're going to fight for me. you got to fight for me if this is going to be accomplished. And his grace is going to be sufficient. And finally, I want you to see this in the salvation of the Lord. Look down with me in verse 15. So this is all about seeing God as our champion. And we really see him as champion because of the way he takes care of Pharaoh and his army. In verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? <laughs> I got this. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. It's like your kid tell, giving you advice, and you're like, I got this. I understand how to park the car. Chill, okay? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the pe- that the people of Israel may go through the sea on the dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So all of this, and just remember this, every situation you go through isn't about you necessarily. God is working to show his glory and power in your life and in the world. And that's what's happening. And the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord when I have gotten glory over the Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the hosts of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of the cloud moved, moved from before them and stood behind them. Now, just Okay, i got to stop here for a minute because this is, is insane. If you're talking about God being our champion. When you see the angel of the Lord, this guy appears in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 22. He was, the angel of the Lord is the one who spoke to Moses in the bush. Remember the bush, the flaming bush that was flaming but it wasn't consumed, that was God's presence? There is this character that, uh, that shows up all throughout the scripture as the angel of the Lord. He speaks with the authority of the Lord. He is a messenger of the Lord, and most scholars think that it was a pre-incarnate Jesus. He's always existed, makes sense. And so here's what happened. The people on one side, they got this giant military might. They've been led to this point where the sea's right here. And do you know who goes and stands in between them? Between the army and the people? The angel of the Lord, quite possibly pre-incarnate Jesus. And then the cloud represents God's presence, especially the Holy Spirit. And so who, who is this? And I just want you to just know this. When you're in the battles, you have someone who intercedes and stands as a defender for you. And it points us to Jesus, our defender, our advocate, who stands in between us and danger. So get this, as dark as the moments are for these people, God is in between them and certain destruction. You hear that? God is always there in between, in, in between as an intercessor for his people, keeping us. So your danger is not as bad as it could even be, because he is interceding for you. Verse 20 says this, so coming between the hosts, of Egypt, the hosts of Egypt, the army of Egypt, and the hosts of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without coming near the other all night. So they were like, the Egyptians were like, I'm not going near that because they got this flaming cloud at night. Then verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters 
being a wall to them on their right hand, on their left. And the Egyptians pursued them and went after them into the midst. And all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of the cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. He clogged their chariot wheels, so they drove heavy. And the Egyptians said, let us flee before Israel. The Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots of the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, and the waters being a wall to them, on their right hand and on their left. And so the miracle happens. God has, through Moses, the sea is parted, and this wind comes, and it dries out the area. And I want you to know this. This is a miracle. This is something that doesn't happen normally. And so this wind comes, and God is using a a natural thing to create this supernatural phenomenon. And so what happens is the wind comes, and it separates the waters, and you got the, the, the waters on each side parted, and Israel walks across, and Pharaoh's like, let's get them. And he sends the whole army. Their wheels become bogged down. And then eventually he crushes them under the weight of the Red Sea, and they're all dead. And so God miraculously saves his people. And then we get a a glimpse into why he does this in verse 30. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. All of this is done to show that God is more powerful than Pharaoh and his God. Because this all happened, the the drowning happened at the first dawn. And their God, one of the gods in Egypt, besides worshiping the Pharaoh, they worshiped this God named Ra, who was the sun god. And so as soon as the sun god would have come up and been ready to fight for the Egyptians, God crushes the Egyptians, showing that he is God of gods. Secondly, I want you to note this. God regularly brings salvation to his people through destruction. Let me give you this example. How does he free the people in Egypt the first time? The death of the firstborn. What happens? The people are covered by a sacrifice of a lamb, right? That covers their sins, and they are, they are exempt from God's destruction. In this particular situation, water, the, the very thing they walked through was their salvation. They walked through the dry ground, and then God uses this mode of salvation to destroy these people, to give his people salvation. So God's salvation comes through judgment. How does God firmly show this in the New Testament? The cross, what was it? It was an implement of death. It was developed by the Romans as a heinous way for them to control crime and to kill criminals. That was a symbol of judgment. What happens on the cross? God judges his son so that all who believe on him might live. This is an example and a type that points us to this. When God comes through and saves us in impossible situations and we see his salvation through judgment, we believe. Our faith is strengthened and we walk again. And I, want, 
I just want to tell you this from the deepest part of me. I know that God has led you or will be leading you, or you might be in the midst of it now, leading you through impossible circumstances. You can despair and think God is not there. Or you could curse him to say, why would you bring this? Or you could look at the detour in your life and you say, you brought this and you love me enough to have brought this because you're preparing me for something. Or you're showing yourself to be the Savior that I need in this moment. And you are increasing my faith. Because it's really hard to kill the faith of somebody who has already been crucified with Christ. It's really hard. Impossible even. You know why? Because he has shown yet and yet again that he is a capable Savior. And he has saved in the past, and he has saved fully in Christ, and he will save again and again, and you are secure in his plan, no matter your detour, no matter your circumstances. Because of this, our hope stands sure, and it's not because of our strength, because if we did it by our own strength, we would fail, but it's about his strength in our life. So I pray, my prayer for you, and I want to pray for you, that God would strengthen you in your inward man, and that you would be able to walk in faith, and we're going to express that faith in communion in just a second. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ today, God, that they would walk in faith. I pray today that you would encourage them, that you've brought whatever situation in their life for a purpose, especially those. I pray for those who are going through difficult, impossible situations at the moment. I pray they would not, because of your word, they would not abide in their own strength, but that they would rest in your power and that our faith would be strengthened as we see you come through again and again and again. You don't ever let us down. Your promises are true. And God, I pray that we would walk in that strength. I pray that for my brothers and sisters, and I pray that for me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you will, let's stand and we'll be dismissed with these words. Exodus 14, verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Would you walk in faith this week, believing that the Lord has worked salvation for you? God bless you. You are dismissed.